Hey guys, it's Tats here from Castagra, and welcome to the Specified Growth Podcast. Each week, I talk to leaders and experts about how to overcome adversity, grow massive organizations, and how to create meaningful change in the building materials and coatings industry. Today's guest is Bill Kent. He's the CEO of Team Horner Group, which has 600 employees. Bill, thanks for coming on the show. You're welcome, Tats. So, so I read some, somewhere that one of your favorite sayings is, nothing is constant but change. Can you talk a bit about that? Well, at the very beginning of my career, which was over 50 years ago, my first real professional job was at the General Electric Company in Cincinnati, Ohio. That's where I grew up at a very large factory that built jet engines. Mm. And I was in a small department that built rocket motor cases. And there was a guy in a wheelchair who was the engineer who did all of the drawings, engineering drawings for the different motor case products that we were building. And his name was Fred. And Fred had that sign on his desk. Yeah. Nothing is constant but change. And it was kind of a parody that every time he put out a drawing, he knew that one of the other engineers would come in and make a, make a change in it. And it sort of stuck with me throughout my career because it's true. I mean, look at what's happened in 2020. Wow. Huh? <laughs> you know? Yeah. You could, another way of saying it is expect the unexpected. Yeah. <laughs> so because no one could have foreseen what's happened in 2020, for sure. For sure. And there was, a, there was an old was a book written, I forget the guy's name that wrote it, called Thriving in Chaos. Yeah. Who wrote that book, Tots? I'm not sure. It sounds familiar, though. I forget. Anyway, Stephen Covey, maybe? No. Mm, okay. he, wrote, he, wrote, he wrote The Seven Habits of uh, six Highly Successful People. But whoever it was, that one's still true, for sure, as well. So, anyway... That's where it came. That's the genesis of it. <laughs> so when someone says it's not rocket science, it means something completely different to you. It sure does. <laughs> one, of, one of the proud little fingerprints in my career is, has to do with the Saturn V. That was the moon rocket that took all of our astronauts to the moon. And I personally was in charge of a small project where we built little booster rockets Oh, wow. That were eight of them were mounted on the outside of stage two of the Saturn V rocket, so that when stage one burned out, everything was going the same speed. So these little tiny rockets just burned for like five seconds and separated stage two from stage one so that stage two could ignite. Okay. And so that was one of my projects. And every time they sent up a moon rocket, which there were quite a few missions, as you know, yeah, I would hold my breath worrying about whether I screwed up some of the uh, engineering specifications because it was very technical during that time in the 1960s. So just a different kind of technology than what we have today, but it was still technology. So... Anyway, and I'm proud to say that uh, I was in the last year, I went up to Cape Kennedy for a visit with some friends, and there's a Saturn V laying on the ground up there uh, with my stuff on it. Oh, very <laughs> nice. So, so it's pretty cool. Yeah, it's really, really cool. 
So how do you make how do, how did you make the leap from that to more of an entrepreneurial focus? I think that entrepreneurialism is almost a DNA issue, you know, mm. where it's either in your DNA or it's not. It has to do with managed risk in its most simple terms. It has to do with managed risk. And after about five and a half years building rocket components, I had tried to move from the big GE factory into a different division of General Electric because they're a fabulous company. And I learned a lot from them that came into play when I became a business owner later. And anyway, they didn't have a really good way of allowing an employee to research job opportunities outside of where you were physically. So I started looking. And son of a gun, I interviewed for a job in the swimming pool industry as a manufacturing. It was a small manufacturer on the outskirts of Cincinnati. And I got the job as a manager of operations at the age of 27. Mm. And within the first six months, unlike the rocket business where most of the products we were building were Minutemen components, and Minuteman was a nuclear-tipped warhead muscle. So there was a philosophical thing there why you really hoped nobody would ever use what you were building. But Saturn was an exception to that rule. And anyway, so I had wanted to sort of move out of defense into something different. And I didn't get the opportunity within GE. So I got this job and I fell in love with the swimming pool industry. Mm -hmm. The first time I went out and saw one of our pools in operation with a hundred kids in it. These were big, like city park pools and, and that kind of thing. And today, that was January the 1st, 1970, I changed careers. And today in 2020, I still love the swimming pool industry. Our particular business position in the supply chain, in our wholesale business, which was the core that started the whole thing, we have a couple of thousand customers and they're for the 90% of them have less than 10 employees. So they're mom and pop style companies. And through the decades since I moved to Florida in 1972, we've grown and diversified our business. But at the same time, a lot of our customers in the wholesale distribution part of the business are still similar to the way they were in the 70s. So I can identify with how you take a small company and take it up because right currently we're just a little under 600 employees. Yeah. When I joined the, our company, we had three. Yeah. Three employees. So, so for people that have a smaller company that are looking to you and that want to grow their, their presence, like what were the early lessons that you learned when you were part of this company and, and helping to grow it? Well, you know, some of those lessons are constant. I mm-hmm. think one of, one of the things uh, that's important is the ability to delegate. And I see a lot of our customers where the owner or the, if it's a mom and pop, a husband and a wife team or whatever the family structure is that's uh, got them in business together, every significant decision has to be made by one of them. Mm-hmm. And, and that can be a, a, a big limiting factor in terms of your ability to grow the company. So that's one giving every employee, no matter how big or small you are, a shared fate in the company to me is a very philosophically important. In other words, we've had a bonus program, a Christmas bonus program since the 70s 
where approximately 15% of the net after-tax earnings, because we are, you know, we were sub-S until five years ago, but about 15% of the net after-tax earnings was given back to the employees in the form of a Christmas bonus every single year, presuming there is profitability, which there isn't always profitability because of the economy going up and down and all the things that happen in life. Is that something you just, did you read that somewhere? Or is that, did you get that sort of tip? Because not all all companies approach it that way, right? Uh, They do not. A lot of small companies, basically the owners, they'll pay their employees whatever the salaries or whatever their position justifies, but they don't share profitability. I don't know. I I have uh, three sisters and two brothers, and we just grew up in a house where we shared everything. So I think it's probably a part of my Christian upbringing as well that we share with each other. For me, it's never been about the money as a business owner. You have to be profitable in capitalism or else you, it's, it's pretty cruel. So you have to be profitable once you've been financially successful. How you manage that financial success will dictate a lot in terms of the culture of your business. And from the early days, I've always been very transparent about where the business is, where it's going, and employees have always had confidence that uh, if the company was successful, uh, they would get some share of it. Yeah. So when you talk about transparency, are we talking, talking open book management transparency or just key performance indicators? What does that mean? in terms of uh, communicating with your uh, team? Well, not open book per se, but semi-open book. Okay. Okay. It's not appropriate to share everything from a financial standpoint with the employees, but it is appropriate to let them know how well we're doing or how well we're not doing. And one of my other mainstay beliefs in life is in continuous improvement. Mm. And And that's in every phase of our life. So continuous improvement plays well with the financial side of it, where really, in terms of thinking about things from one year to the next year, if we can just continuously get a little better than we were before, then everyone will be happy because there's a green and growing atmosphere, which is one of the cultural goals that I've always had is to keep the business green and growing so that the employees who want to grow, because not everybody wants to, but the people who do want to grow have an opportunity inside the company to grow. Mm. And we have a lot of success stories in Team Horner that people who started here in college never had another job. And 30 years later, they're a vice president of the company and running a big division of the company. And so that is spiritually very satisfying to me. Yeah. So, I mean, when you start a you have a culture of continuous improvement, you know, things go very quickly. But when you were transitioning from a smaller company to like, let's say a medium-sized company, what were the key projects or the key improvements you think that kind of sort of initiated that sort of uh, shift in uh, size growth? I'd have to say that in some ways, one of the big things, I have a wanderlust for traveling globally. Uh-huh. It's just in, it's in my DNA. Okay. And so beginning, uh, I moved here in 1972. I bought the company from the founder in 1975. And then I opened an export division in 1976, one year later, focused on the Caribbean. 
Mm-hmm. And so I did some traveling in the Caribbean to meet customers and sell sales and all that sort of thing. This is back when we had under 20 employees. Well, in 1985, I got a big break. There was an export company in the swimming. This is all in our business, our industry, swimming pool industry. I bought a company and located in Palo Alto, California, about mm-hmm. two miles from the Stanford campus that exported globally to about 45 countries. And the owner and his wife wanted to retire in three years. So what I told them, and their names were Hank and Bev, I said, well, I would like to meet every customer. Mm-hmm. So Hank and I traveled the world for three years, meeting every single customer that he had. And what that, I didn't, wasn't thinking about it at the time, but what that did for the people here in Florida who were running our local distribution company here, we were not in the manufacturing business at that point. What that did was their dependency on me to be here every day to make decisions was evaporated because I was traveling 180 to 200 days a year for three years. So that gave them the confidence and the experience of making decisions and seeing how they worked out later. Because that's the big thing is everybody makes good decisions and everybody makes bad decisions. But the smart thing to do is when you make a bad decision, don't do the same dumb thing twice. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, definitely (laughs) learn from it. (laughs) So they got a chance to find out how their decision-making was without me even knowing about it. Cause I might be gone for four or five weeks <laughs> and, and they got to make a decision today about something that's happening right now, right here. So that actually helped our business grow because the team, and cause I've always been team based, the team uh, matured and developed and, and grew confident in themselves. Yeah. I mean, at this point you were pretty confident you had the right people in place, right? Before you went on this, World tour. Well, I didn't have all the right people in place, and some of them did get replaced because it also gives you a, it's kind of an acid test in terms mm-hmm. of how, how competent are they relative to the job requirements. And there are people who needed to be replaced, and they did get replaced. One of the biggest mistakes I've seen in business in general is not firing people who need to be fired, mm-hmm. especially in family companies, because it's really hard to fire your mother-in-law or your son or your <laughs> this guy, this guy, this is where it gets really complicated. Uh, but I've seen plenty of times where the best thing they could have done was fire their useless son and put him out into the real world. Let him go find out what life is really like. Yeah. But they don't do it sometimes. Sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. So it's, but that's a, that's an important thing is firing people who need to be fired. Yeah. It's really hard to delude yourself. And I could tell you our stories that I won't tell you <laughs> about, about how I personally made the mistake of not firing people who needed to be fired. And ultimately, sooner or later, it does happen. But it's kind of like a divorce. Uh, you know, you can live unhappily or you can get it over with. So, yeah. It, but um, personal loyalties come into play, of course, and sure. knowledge of people's lives. And you don't really want, you want to be, you want people to be happy in where they're, where they're at. And most of the time, if they're not doing the job, 
they're just really not suited for what, whatever the requirements of the position are. So, yeah, I mean, in some ways, parting ways is a form of compassion, right? Because they're not a fit and not doing a great job and probably not happy. Yeah, that's exactly right. And sometimes I've had people who we, the group company grew, let's say, you know, in a, not a, like a six month period, but in a five to 10 year uh, period, the company grew and the people weren't capable of growing to the next level themselves in terms of handling the additional complexity that comes as you develop systems and processes and then get into parallel processes and parallel systems and all that sort of thing. So the level of complexity is pretty linear with the size of the business. Yeah. Now we have manufacturing, two major acquisitions that I made in 1992. Uh, manufacturing of swimming pool heat pumps and then salt chlorine generators. And then we've started divisions. And then I had a joint venture in manufacturing that I ended up owning uh, in specialty chemicals because product, product lines called Lochlor. And it was originally a joint venture with an Australian guy from Sydney that I had come to be friends with. And he wanted to open up in North America. So we started a factory right here in Fort Lauderdale for that product line. And then he died. So the partnership agreement allowed me to buy his wife's half of the business. So all of a sudden, that's another division. And now we have an import division. And then in January of this year, uh, Western Europe is the second largest pool market. France is actually outside the United States. The next largest swimming mm. pool industry is in France. Oh, wow. And then the third largest is in Australia. And so in both Western Europe and in Australia, I've had multiple ventures. Most of them didn't succeed just from startup. I just couldn't get the right people in place. But earlier this year, after searching for a couple of years, we bought a manufacturing company with two large factories that make one-piece fiberglass swimming pools. And they have about 80 employees, and they build about 2,000 pools a year. And that is now giving us a new challenge because of the cultural side of it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I love all that. And we're still getting our arms around the accounting thing and the cost reporting and all that kind of stuff because... European financial statements don't look anything like an American financial statement. So it's a lot of fun. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, international, it's definitely difficult. It could be a challenge. What sort of things, I mean, I think you've already mentioned a few things, but what sort of things do you have to keep in mind when you're going to expand internationally? Because, you know, the, the standard advice is stay home, you get your market figured out locally and then expand. But you you started expanding really early on. You must have learned a lot of cool things. Well, I think some of it has to do, Tats, with my mindset. Yeah. Everything we do, I try to think about it from the customer's point of view. Mm. Everything. And a lot of business owners won't think of their employees as customers. So when it comes to internal decision-making, things that impact the culture, I also try to think about the employee as a customer and how are they going to react to it. There are some times there are things where you just have to do something that's unpleasant or unhappy, whether it's firing an employee or it's just 
10 years ago where we had the big recession before this crazy the COVID yep. thing happened. And back then we had when uh, at the end of 2007, when the recession started, we had around 450 employees. And at the end of the next year, we were down to 290 employees. Oh, wow. Because the pool, swimming pool industry, not just here in Florida, because our business is beyond Florida, but we have a big share of our businesses here in the Florida market. But the swimming pool industry severely contracted 10 years ago, severely contracted. And we had no choice. We had to get back to what I call the point of dysfunctionality as a company. So we laid off everybody that we could lay off without becoming dysfunctional and cut every single line on the income statement that was discretionary. We cut everything we could cut just to get the break even. Mm-hmm. And then after that happened, we still lost money. And uh, we lost like, I think it was $2 million in 2008, I think it was. And so I had to do a cross-the-board payroll cut, which is probably the most difficult thing I've ever done. But the lesson that I learned was, is that you have to, if you're the owner or the manager, top dog in the business, the number one priority is to keep the business in a survive, at least a survival mode, because without that, nobody has anything. It's all gone. And uh, so you have to keep the business as the top priority. Yeah. I mean, looking back, would you have done anything in terms of timing or methodology, like through those years, or would you have done it the exact same way, knowing what you know now? Man, you ask great questions, Tats. <laughs> 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 when that when that when that uh, recession started, I thought that we were good enough that we could make up for the declining sales because it just kept going down, 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 down. Yeah, I I kept thinking we can make this up by improving our market share, doing a better job. Well, <laughs> when the whole pie shrinks, there ain't no you know you don't. It doesn't happen that way. So I didn't lay people off soon enough. So that's how we got into an upside down financial situation. Yeah. But one of the other caveats, if you're a business owner, is what's more important, the income statement or the balance sheet? Well, I've always believed in a very strong balance sheet because that allows you the, the financial buffer to have some bad times and actually get through them okay. The income statement is easily manipulated. You can play games with that sort of thing. But the balance sheet, how much debt you have and how much receivables you've got and all that, if you've got a very strong one where your assets, especially cash, because cash is king, we all know that, and cash ain't cash unless it's cash, okay? But if you've got a very strong balance sheet with very little debt, then you can survive a lot of stuff. Some businesses are more capital intensive than others. Ours is particularly capital intensive in both manufacturing and wholesale distribution. For example, in wholesale distribution, inventory turns are crucial and receivables management is crucial because we end up giving credit to 90% of our customers. And if they don't pay you on time, you can be making money on paper and still lose money from a cash flow standpoint. So Mm -hmm. the cash flow statement is important. Anyway, so those are some of the little 
things that help when something goes bad. But I definitely waited too long to lay people off. And that was probably more of a spiritual thing. I don't regret it now. I did learn from it and I wouldn't do it again. But you never really know which direction it's going. Totally. I mean, fast forward to 2020 and look at what's happened here. In January and February, everything was normal and great. And our business is green and growing. And then all of a sudden, this drama with the COVID flu thing hits. But as fate would have it, this time, cats, our business is actually up. Yeah. Uh, which is just a blessing the good Lord gave us. Some bureaucrats somewhere said we were essential because of swimming pool service. It's true that if the pools aren't taken care of, they'll turn into cesspools pretty quickly. They probably had pools, Bill. They probably had pools in their backyard. Yes, sir. (laughs) We we believe there should be a pool in every backyard. (laughs) We also believe, by the way, that every child should learn to swim as soon as possible once they're out of the womb because I'm involved in a program called Every Child a Swimmer. But anyway, what's really happened is this lockdown has forced a lot of people to stay at home, and families who were thinking about building a pool have actually implemented and and taken the first step. So the pool construction business, number of permits for pools is up, and the renovation, repair, and service has been very steady. So our sales are up 4.5. 6% this year so far, year to date. We are just plain lucky when it comes to that one. So we're not laying people off and we haven't had any COVID incidents. Sure. You know, we're, we're doing all the standard protocols, of course, but we're still green and growing. And the French, two, the two factories in France uh, had to shut down for a couple of weeks because that's how France operated. Uh, but they're back, both back up and running. And as I said, the backlog is good. And so the same thing's happening there that's happening here and that people are buying pools who had been just thinking about it. They went ahead and, and, and actually did it. Yeah. So, so Bill, you, you touched on family being involved in business and all that stuff. But my understanding, I think, from a prior conversation is your wife's involved in the business. How's that? Kim was a personal trainer professionally before we met. And after we got married, she wanted to get involved in a wellness program for the company. And we had always had like free gym benefits and stuff like that. If you, you know, we reimburse you for your health club membership and all that. But frankly, the participation levels were pretty low. And so she came to me, we talked about it and she had a meeting of people who volunteered. And the criteria was all of the other programs that I had done throughout the 40 years mm-hmm. had been things where maybe I saw a speaker and brought him in, a doctor or some physiologist or something. I brought him in and paid to have the employee, paid the speaker's fees to have them come and do their programs. And it was successful, but it wasn't didn't have a level of traction that I was happy about. So when she, Kim brought this up, I said, well, let's try it, but I want to change the paradigm a little. And she says, well, what do you mean? And I said, I don't want any managers, including me, having any influence on the programs. Mm. Nothing. Okay. And 
so they had a meeting of non-managerial people uh, here in Fort Lauderdale, because this is what we call the mothership here. Yeah. And uh, so she comes back and says, well, the first big question that came up was, what's the budget? Oh, it, yeah. It's not, so, it's not the question you like sometimes if you're, if you're watching the balance sheet in P&L. Tats, I love that question. <laughs> Guess what my answer was? What was your answer? There is no budget. (laughs) (laughs) And she was shocked. And I said, listen, I am not going to give you a number because then what you're going to do, you and your your new uh, committee is just going to try to figure out how to spend whatever that number is, $10,000 a year, $50,000 a year, $100,000. You're going to just spend all your time trying to figure out how to spend that money. I am not doing that. I want you to make the decisions not based on the cost, but rather on the quality of the program. And that's how it started. And guess what their first request was once we got past that little budget issue? Wow. I have no idea. But, well, of course but you, you don't. <laughs> and, I, and I would have never guessed. Okay. <laughs> what was it? I would have never guessed. They told me what they wanted more than anything. The number one request was for a quiet room. Oh. A quiet room. A place where someone could go, sit in a big lounger chair in the dark, and listen to music. So we did. So we said we found a closet somewhere, cleaned it out, and turned it into a quiet room. There's no supervision on it. And I see people once in a while, not all the time, but I know they, that the quiet room is still used. And that was like six years ago, actually, when this yeah. program started. Yeah, yeah. So, so there's never been any abuse of it that I know of. And if there is abuse of it, I don't even want to know. And, uh, <laughs> but that was their first request was a quiet room. And then uh, as time went on, they, we started bringing in fitness coaches and uh, other kinds of coaches for yoga and Tai Chi and all that. So we ended up taking another space here because we have two fairly large buildings. The whole thing is you know, over 100,000 square feet, so it's big enough. And so we took another room that, wasn't, that was empty and not being used for much. And we turned it into a gymnasium and a kind of a yoga room where they can do everything from meditation to, like I said, Tai Chi and all that stuff. And that's going on on a regular basis. We pay for the coaches that come in to do their thing. And there's a basically it's one-on-one type of, of coaching where someone here can, can meet with a health coach and, and that kind of thing. We also have had, they've organized and brought in a lot of speakers on everything from financial wellness, you name it, mental health, and all that kind of stuff. And and they have had a lot of events where they'll do a walk. My wife has uh, gotten involved in an organization here locally called Heart to Heart, where they visit retirement homes because somewhere around 60% of the people who are in retirement homes never get a visitor, which is pretty sad. Mm-hmm. So they go in on a Saturday and throw a little party and for the people that are in these retirement homes, stuff like that. So it's a very spiritually rewarding uh, program. We've always had a good culture, by the way, but what this Color Be Healthy program did was ramp it up to the next level. 
Wonderful. Speaking about great culture, you know, that's why I got referred to you. You mentioned the ESOP program where you, your employees or your team, they, they own the company. Like how, how did that come to be? Well, as a business, we've always been successful and we have a major component in wholesale distribution, another major component in manufacturing. And then we have the export division, which is really kind of a form of distribution, wholesale distribution. By the way, we have customers in 105 countries all over the world now. Wow. And the life cycle gets us all at some point. I'm now, as we sit here, 77 years old. I've been doing this since I was 29 years old. <laughs> so, you, still, uh, you still sound like you're 20, 29, really? Honestly, I, if you didn't say well, that, I think the listeners wouldn't know. Well, Tats, I've been accused of being a millennial more than once. <laughs> So anyway, what were we ta- what were, where were we going with that? The ESOP. Um, you're telling me about the ESOP. So when I hit around 70, you know, the bell starts to ring in the back of your head. Hey, look, this isn't going to go on forever. Good Lord created the life cycle uh, for some good reasons. I'm not sure what all of them are, but I know, I know that it's there. And so I started meditating on what to do with the ownership. It would have been very easy to sell in the business. I had continually through the last 25 years offers. People would call and say, hey, you want to buy? We want to buy your company. And I would always say, what do you got beyond money? Because I already have too much money. Yeah. (laughs) That was my standard answer is what do you got beyond money? Because I don't, (laughs) I already have too much. So that kind of always set them back. And um, (laughs) anyway, so as time went on, it came down to well, what are the other choices? And my number one concern, honestly, is we have over half of our almost 600 employees, and way over half are more than five years with the company, yeah. probably 35 or 40 percent are more than 10 years with the company. We have people, I mean, the oldest one, BR myself, is 40 years with the company. So a yeah. lot of them have spent their entire lives with me, their working lives. And I wasn't going to destroy their careers. And the one thing I knew was the way our business is set up, a lot of people would have got eliminated that had spent their lives with me. And I wasn't willing to pay that price spiritually, even though I could have just taken some of the money and give it to them. So I started investigating the employee stock ownership plan. It turns out to be a really great choice if you want to preserve the legacy of of your culture of your company, if that's Mm -hmm. more important to you. Most people don't know it, but ESOPs don't pay taxes. So instead of being a sub S corporation like it was with me paying the maximum tax rate, it became a tax exempt organization. This is all under IRS regulations. So on January the 1st, 2016, four and a half years ago now, uh, we converted. So all of the employees became owners. Ownership doesn't change in ownership, did not change anything from a management or leadership standpoint. Mm -hmm. I'm still the CEO of the company, but because of the life cycle, before I changed the ownership, I also found the next generation leader of our company. Yeah. His name is Mike Dooley and known him since he was 17 years old. He and I have a long time commitment to each other. And I, I totally trust Mike. He's a great leader. So 
about six or eight months before the ownership transition, he became president and CEO, chief operating officer of the company. Great. So the other vice presidents who were running the different divisions of the business all started reporting to him. That was very successful. He had no trouble changing from peer group to leadership position. So he reports to me and then the vice presidents all report to him. And we, he and I work very closely together. I'm very proud of him. And he's very happy with the situation too. They all know I'm not going to last forever. At least yeah. so, but I'm okay. I'm, I still love what I do and feel blessed that the good Lord has given me the life he has. So happy with that. So anyway, so now for the employees, the great thing is most Americans don't save any money. Yeah. Even if we have we have a 401k plan for, for decades, but probably only 50% of the people participate in it. I'm not sure. But let's just say it's 50%. Sure. Well, an employee stock ownership plan, 100% of the people will get some share of the profits on a, in a fair way. That's all governed by IRS regulations. They'll get a share of that put aside for them and... They can't touch it until they leave. And when they leave, there's a program for paying them out. Once they leave, then they're out of the ESOP and we have a program for paying them off. So in essence, I'm forcing them to save money for themselves. Yeah. And that's a really great thing because they are going to be, if someone spends 20 or 30 years here, if they come in here when they're 25 or 30 years old, when they walk out the door 25 or 30 years later, they're going to be millionaires. Yeah. So it's a really it's really a great program for everybody. There's some tax benefits for me personally in terms of the payoff, all that kind of stuff. So it's been very, we're five years downstream now and very successful and very happy with how it's going. Great, Bill. It's been great. Your story is inspirational. Your people extremely well, and you're doing great things to preserve the legacy that you've built. Thank you. Yeah. Well. Well, thank you so much for spending the time. You're welcome. I look forward to getting a copy of the whatever it is you edit out. <laughs> All right, thank you. I want to thank everyone for listening to Specify today. Also want to thank the listeners who are working hard each day to change the world to make it a better place. If you know anyone anyone that would benefit from this episode, please pass it along. And finally, make sure you subscribe to hear upcoming episodes. Talk to you soon. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.